found. I'll start uh, by reading something. I have a news article here that I wanted to that I wanted to read to you. It's a good segue into what Solomon's talking about in Ecclesiastes. And this is this is what it says. It says H. H. Williams, a husband and father, forty-seven years of age charged at Yakima with the most deliberate assault upon little Lottie Davis, only 15 years of age, on trial last week, urged as his only defense that the child had led him astray. The wife of Williams likewise affects to believe that the girl is wholly to blame. He eloped with the child and lived with her a week before he was apprehended at Goldendale. And that is... It's not that it's a good thing, but that kind of thing, that kind of thing is, has always happened. And I say that because this, this is from the Washington Standard in Olympia, Washington on July 15th, 1904. 1904. Um, so it's a long time ago, but people still do uh, stupid things like that. These kind of things still happen. All sorts of things still happen. And that kind of thing, that kind of realization that no matter what we try and do, no matter how we try it, if we want to try and make the world better, if you want to try and make a difference in the world, if you want to try and do all these wonderful idealistic things, you can look around at any point in your life and think, what, what, has, actually, what has actually changed? What, 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 things have, what are the things that I've been devoting my time to and do they have any real eternal significance at all? Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 is he's asking himself these questions. In Ecclesiastes 1.3, he says, what do people gain from all the hard work that they work so hard at under the sun? He says a generation comes and goes. Uh, the earth remains as it always has. The sun rises and sets. The wind blows. Everything just continues to happen, but nothing, nothing really seems to change about this world. And he's sort of stepping back and looking at what on earth what, what on earth is the point of all of the things that we spend our time doing and investing our energy yeah. and our efforts yeah. and our passions into when at the end of it, nothing externally seems to be changing with this world, which is why he, he utters that you know, famous line, vanity of vanities, or everything's, everything's pointless. It, it, he's, he's sort of, he's, he's despondent because all of the things that people spend their time doing don't seem to have any eternal significance, which is why I can read you, you know, aside from me, the vocabulary is a little bit different, but there's nothing you, I, I could have read this article, I could have told you it was from yesterday, and you would have believed me, and, but it's actually from 1904, and we could have repeated the same thing and gone back to the 19th century, because what Solomon said is true, some things just, the, things don't seem to ever change, they don't seem to ever get better. And he's despondent and depressed. He's discouraged at that. And he wants us to start thinking about what, in, what exactly in our life, what in this life has eternal meaning, and where should we invest our time and energy? Where should we put our hope, actually? He says in Ecclesiastes 1.9, whatever has happened, that's what will happen again. Whatever has occurred, that's what will occur again. There's nothing new under the sun. So we'll pray, and I'll just take a really quick 500-mile-an-hour flyby through Ecclesiastes 2, and we'll look at three, three uh, possible answers that he considers in his sort of um, quest to see what is there meaning to be found here under the sun, excluding God from the picture or not. And we'll, we'll remind ourselves of what he says there. So we'll pray, and we'll, we'll take a look at it. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to want to, to know you more. 
help us to have the right perspective on our lives, on what we do, on what we think, on what we spend our energy and time doing, and what we put our hope in, no matter what we confess with our lips and sing in church on Sundays, help us to actually really and truly put our, our hope and our, our, our faith in you, your Son, and your Gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So he, he starts off, I'll skim through the rest of chapter 1, but he says in chapter 1, verse 14, he's sort of summing up his conclusions. He says, you know, when I observed all that happens under the sun, I realized that everything is pointless, a chasing after wind. Some people, when they look at Ecclesiastes, they think that he's just sort of a fatalist. He says there's no point. We just need to eat, drink, and be merry because nothing matters in this world. But what he's actually doing is he's talking about how if you remove if you remove God and the shape and order and, and definition he's supposed to give to your life and you just take it away and you see, you look at what things, what solutions are, are out there in the world for peace, security, hope, uh, fulfillment. Solomon says that none of them have anything that lasts. And if that's all you have, then you should, st- you should have some introspection and think about that and realize that you're spending your life, you're wasting your life essentially. Everything is pointless at chasing after the wind. He says, in, he starts in chapter 2, and he have, we have three, three possible paths he, he takes a look at in his sort of quest. The first one is pleasure. He has pleasure, he has wisdom, knowledge, intellectual pursuits, and then he has work. And all three of these he, he spends time examining. He says, None of these provide any answers in and of themselves without being defined by God. Just in and of themselves, they're, they're useless. They do nothing for you. They don't fulfill you. They don't provide you anything that means anything in an eternal sense. So he says, uh, starting in verse 1, I said to myself, come, I'll make you experience pleasure and experience, enjoy what is good. And he goes on to describe his sort of experiments. He says in verse 3, that he, he made sure that wisdom was still guiding him. So he, he didn't just descend into, into debauchery, but it's a, calculated, uh, it's a calculated sort of experiment on just experiencing the pleasures of life in a very full and sinful way. He talks about possessions that he, that he gathers for himself. He talks about sexual gratification. He talks about silver and gold. He talks about all of these He's in, a, he's in a position to get all of these things and as much as, as, as any person could want in order to determine is there real lasting fulfillment in any of these things. And the power in Ecclesiastes is not that there's the answer is no, because we know that in our minds, but the pow, one of the great powers of Ecclesiastes in this book of wisdom and really you know, profound philosophy is that it, help, it reminds us and recenters us because we, there's things we know in our head intellectually that we sometimes refuse to let have practical impact in our life. Or without realizing it, it's sort of floated back into the back of our mind, but it has nothing to do with real life, no matter what we say, no matter what we sing at church on Sundays. And he's going on and describing all of these these different paths in pursuit of of pleasure, material possessions, sex, um, wealth, And in verse 10, he sums up, he says, I refrained from nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And in verse 11, he says, but when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I'd worked so hard to achieve, I realized that it was pointless. A chasing after wind, nothing is to be gained under the sun. 
because he realizes that none of those things have any, they don't have any eternal significance. They don't help him when he's sick. They don't help him when his heart is broken. They don't help him when his, um, they don't help him when his, uh, he has to give advice to his son through the book of Proverbs. They don't help you when you need real hope, meaning something to grab onto, something to, to anchor your life and provide meaning. All it is is just pleasure. And it's not to say that if you're a Christian, you can't be happy and like the things that God blesses you with, but if, if those things define your life in and of themselves without Christ, then you're pursuing, you're, you're basically pursuing idolatry. You're pursuing something else. While formally claiming Christ as your king, you can let that fade into the background and you can pursue other things. And what he's asking, if you're not a believer, he's asking you to think about what your life actually consists of. If, you're, if you are a believer, he's asking us to think, are you sure that these blessings and pleasurable things that you might have, are you sure that they're not a God that you're actually following? We all know the answer is, of course it isn't, but is it? Is that really the right answer? Because we all know what to say, but is it really the right answer when you consider your life. In verses 12 to 17, he talks about wisdom, intellectual pursuits. My reflections then turn to wisdom, madness, and folly. He says, um, he talks about how, you know, it, it's, at least on a temporary basis, it's better to be a wise person than to be a fool. We all have family members who are, who are people we know who are, might be decent people, but they're just fools. We know people that are very intelligent. And, you know, it's, it's an advantage to be intelligent and to be wise, which is not necessarily the same thing as having a high IQ. But he says in verse 14, but I also realize that the same fate happens to both of them. And so he says, so what's the point? Like in the end, what's the point of intellectual pursuits, cultivation of wisdom for just for its own sake when we both die in the end and we all end up um, going to the grave. Verse 16, there's no eternal memory of the wise any more than the foolish because everyone's forgotten before long. How many of us know anything about our great-grandparents? Were they wise people? Were they foolish people? Some of you, you might know, but I'm betting you probably don't. And it, that's Solomon's point. Maybe your great-grandmother was the sweetest, wisest woman that ever lived, or maybe she wasn't. You don't know, nor do you You probably don't particularly care either. It's not that you want to be mean, but you don't know her. Or if you, if you did know her, then just do your great-great-grandma. Do whatever it needs to to make the point stick. No one remembers. No one remembers whether she was a wonderful lady or an awful lady because there's no memory of it. If that's all your pursuit is wisdom, intellectual knowledge, there's nothing there. It's, it fades away, and then people that come after you won't remember any of it. So what's the eternal value is what he's saying. There's a, um, a Baptist commentary series from the late 19th century edited by Alva Hovey, who was a, a famous, very influential Northern Baptist minister. It's called the American Commentary Series. The modern iteration is the new American Commentary Series. But in that, vol in that set, um, John Brodus, who is A.T. Robertson, you know, A.T. Robertson, the guy with a Greek grammar that's eight million pages long. Well, not everyone knows it, but some of you know, know what it is. Uh, John Brodus, I think, was his father-in-law. 
Uh, and he was his mentor in many ways at Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. John Brodus wrote a commentary for Matthew in that series. It's almost 700 pages long. It's extremely detailed, extremely, it's really great. I've, I've looked at it, I've used it. It's a beautiful comment. No one knows it exists, no one cares, right? No one cares. Everyone goes for D.A. Carson's Matthew commentary or something else. No one cares about Brodus because as brilliant as he was, as learned as he was, all of that, his work has been forgotten, except by weirdos who found it on archive.org and downloaded the PDF. No one cares. There's commentaries coming out every day. Go to bestcommentaries.com for the nerds who, who like theology. Brodus isn't listed there. The point is, is that if, if pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is, is an end in, in of itself for you to find purpose and meaning is an anchor to hold on to for purpose in your life, for definition, for identity, what's the point? If that's in and of itself is the end you're looking for, because John Brodus was a really smart guy, and now his commentary is out of print and no one cares. But it's a great commentary. And one day, 70, 80 years from now, D.A. Carson's Matthew commentary will be in the same boat. And someone else will be writing a new one, and everyone will be very excited about it. And without Christ as the center point that guides and directs why you want to learn, why you want to enjoy the benefits and pleasures God has given you, without Christ at the center of defining those things, giving them shape and purpose, and, and moderating them, you're just pursuing an idol, and you're wasting your time because it doesn't mean anything. If John Brodus, if all he cared about was writing a commentary that would last for ages, he failed because no one knows and no one cares, except me. But, uh, but there it is. The next one, the last one, is work, which is particularly, I think this one really hits home, no matter who you are. You know, maybe you're a blue-collar person, and you're like, well, I've always hated school, so I really don't care about the, the intellect example. Well, it doesn't matter. This one, this one I think, will we'll find a lot of people. He examines work. He's, in verse 18, he says, I hated the things I worked so hard for here under the sun because I'll have to leave them to someone who comes after me, and who knows whether that one will be wise or foolish. Build up here. And there's always the cliche about the father who builds up this amazing business, and then he gives it to his children, and they destroy it within one generation, and the thing goes bankrupt, or, or whatever. Um, and it's that, that fear of everything I worked for will just be destroyed by whoever takes it over. Maybe I'll pass it to my son, but maybe he and his wife won't want to do it, and as soon as I die, they'll sell it to someone who will destroy it. How do I know? What, so what have I spent my whole life doing to build something that, I, that it stands no chance of, of lasting forever? And if you think of your job, if you, your job, that's an extremely convicting Thing to think about. How many people pour their when you ask them when you meet someone, you ask them what they do because we instinctively identify their job with their identity. And Solomon is saying there is no identity that means anything eternally if your whole being and passions and, and allegiance might formally be in, you know, officially, technically be in Christ, but it's really in your job. And what are you going to do when the job goes away? You're filled with this sense of disorientation, loss of purpose, loss of identity. I saw it in the military where people retire. They go in the Navy at 18 and they retire at 20 years, 25 years. Maybe they hang on to 30 years. 
But you know, even if they hang on 30 years, they get out and they're 48 years old, they don't know what to do with the rest of their life. And so the rest of their life consists of them going to veterans meeting and wearing a US Navy ball cap, and no one cares. Right? No one, of course people will say thank you for your service, but nobody really cares that you spent 20 years of your life in the military, 30 years of your life in the military. It has no eternal meaning. You're just a guy with the veterans ball cap on in the diner. And it doesn't mean your military service is worthless. It means that this thing that gave you your mission and purpose instead of Christ is going to go away one day because you're going to retire and then someone's going to come and replace you and all the people who knew you are going to move on to other things and your, the institutional memory of you and everything you poured your life into is gone. Just like that. Just like that. So what is the eternal value of your work in and of itself with nothing else defining it as a good just all by itself. And Solomon says that there ain't nothing there eternally. I then, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20, I then gave myself up to despair as I thought about all my laborious hard work under the sun. And he goes on about, I don't know who's, who's going who's gonna to be left to. And at the end of verse 21, he said, this too is pointless. It's a terrible wrong. And he's just filled with, it's like, I can't find, there, there is no answer here on this earth, under the sun, that provides fulfillment or anything else. And so in verse 24, he sums up what his, his conclusion is. And his conclusion is to, there's nothing better for human, there's nothing better for people than to eat, drink, and experience pleasure in their hard work. I also saw that this is from God's hand, who can eat and find enjoyment otherwise, because God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please God. And he's not saying that um, just do whatever you want and make the best of this life now. That's not what he's saying. I think that's a cheap way to understand what he's saying. He's saying the only way to find fulfillment is to enjoy the wisdom and the pleasures and the work that he's given you to do, whatever that might be, and view them as sovereign gifts from God and not to find pleasure in them just for their own sake, but to have them be defined by God, by Christ, by his gospel, and the meaning and purpose that he gives to all of us once we understand who we were made to be as he's making us, fashioning us, refashioning us into his image. Those things are nothing by themselves, but when they're defined and shaped by God as he made them to be, then we can find enjoyment in them because we're not, they're not gods that we're serving. They're simply pleasures, benefits, and things God has given us to, to do as we serve him. And that's a subtle point, and we could talk a lot more about it, but that point is what Solomon wants his audience to get. It's what he wants us to get because nothing else has any eternal, eternal meaning in and of itself. I'll close by reading another news article. It says this. Edith Michael, a young girl whose parents reside on Hood Canal, took poison on a street in Seattle on Monday night because her former sweetheart, Mr. C.A. Rich, would not marry her. They quarreled two weeks ago, and by chance they met that night. Miss Michael was ready to make up, but Mr. Rich refused to talk with her. All right, she said, I'll do it and she swallowed the poison. Mr. Rich notified the police. The girl was taken to headquarters and cared for by a physician. She will recover. 
Now, no one knows who Edith Michael is, and no one knows if she ever got over Mr. Rich, the arch cad that, that he was, uh, or what happened to her at all. Maybe they got married, maybe they reconciled, maybe she forgot about him because he's a loser, and she had a wonderful life and wonderful career and married a wonderful guy, or maybe she tried to kill herself again and succeeded. The point is, this is also from the Washington Standard in Olympia on 15 July 1904. And it could have been written today. It could have been depicting a heartsick, lovesick teenager who feels her life is forfeit because the one thing she was really counting on in this life has been taken from her, so she finds no purpose in life. It could have been written by someone, by a lady whose husband left her and was cruel to her. It could be written by anyone today, but it shows it shows how nothing changes and how we all continue to run after something that will give us meaning and purpose and define our identity. And when that thing is taken away from us, we find ourselves lost, standing over an abyss and not, not even knowing who we are anymore and feeling hopeless, maybe hopeless enough to take our own lives. Solomon didn't feel that way, but he did feel despondent and conflicted about how there, there really is, there doesn't seem to be anything purposeful here if that's all you have. So Edith Michael, whoever she is and whatever happened to her, she shows us the universal human condition of looking for hope and meaning and purpose and trying to find it somewhere. And Solomon is telling us there is nothing to be found in pleasure, in wisdom, and work if they are just ends in and of themselves, for themselves. God gives us all these things. We find our meaning and purpose in him and his gospel through his son and defined by him. He makes all these otherwise good things, defines them and gives us purpose. And that's the perspective we should have on our identity, on who we are, on why we're here, on what matters in our life. Not the work, not the pleasure, not um, intellect and pursuit of wisdom for themselves, but for the sake of loving Christ and his gospel and finding our identity there, then with that foundation, we can enjoy the life he's given us. We can learn about him and his word or learn about other things in the creation he's made. And we can enjoy the work that he's given us to do using the gifts that he gifted us to use. And it's that shift of perspective that Solomon makes and that he wants us to get. And no matter who we are, a seminary student or a professor or a, a you know, just a Baptist pastor, whoever you are, all of us need this reminder of what really matters to orient ourselves and our perspectives away from the otherwise good things that we occupy our time with in this world and to focus them on Christ instead. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to always focus our time and effort and energy and our love on you and convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment according to your will as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.